Hey Future Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And we are the hosts of Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Each week, we'll dive into some of the most unnerving crimes that this unnatural world has to offer. Listen for Unnatural on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Today I'm going to tell you guys about a Canadian wrestling superstar, Chris Benoit. The Canadian Crippler. The Pegasus Kid. The Rabid Wolverine. The best damn technical wrestler in the whole world. Chris Benoit! Chris is still remembered to this day as the greatest technical wrestler in the world. In 2007, Chris committed a double murder-suicide against his wife and seven-year-old son, Daniel. So what exactly led Chris to this breakdown that made him murder his whole family? Well, let's start from the top. Chris was born May 21, 1967 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He was a huge fan of wrestling as a child. He followed it religiously, and he particularly idolized wrestlers Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart. Chris's father bought him some weights to teach him discipline, and by the age of 12, Chris started preparing himself to try to become a wrestler. Eventually, he began attending the Hart Family Dungeon, which was like a wrestling gym-slash-school that was located in the basement of the Hart Family Mansion. If you're not familiar, the Hart Family has like a long lineage of wrestlers, and they produce some of the most successful professional wrestlers of all time. By 1985, at age 18, Chris was getting his career started in Stampede Wrestling, and he adopted a style of fighting from his idol, Dynamite Kid, using moves like the flying headbutt. That became his signature move, and it's exactly what it sounds like. He would climb up on the ropes and dive down with his arms out, spread eagle, and literally just dive down with his forehead slamming into the other guy's head. He was even billed as Dynamite Chris Benoit in his first fight. Chris was known as kind of a gentle giant. Like, by all accounts, those who worked with him said that he was an incredibly nice guy. Chris Jericho describes a time where Benoit was in a fight where he was supposed to kick his opponent, but of course, it's it's a stunt. Like, he was supposed to bump that guy's face and they were to make it look real, but I guess he didn't do it right. He didn't connect. So the audience didn't even notice, but Benoit was super disappointed in himself for not getting it. Jericho found him afterwards doing squats in the locker room all by himself, and he said that he had to do 500 squats because he fucked up. And Jericho was like, what do you mean? Who's who's making you do these squats? And he was like, nobody. I'm just doing it. He was like disciplining himself for his own mistake. Even as a newcomer, Chris quickly started getting noticed. He was very focused, and he took his work really seriously. He went to Japan to fight in the New Japan World Wrestling, and he trained there for about a year. It was in Japan that he would start wearing a mask and using the name Pegasus Kid. It was also in Japan that Chris would meet Eddie Guerrero, a.k.a. Black Tiger. Eddie Guerrero was a Mexican wrestler, and at first, he and Chris weren't all that fond of each other. It's said that their first fight together was so intense, it was like two guys fighting over money. Like, both of them were not willing to let up. Eventually, Benoit would kick Eddie Guerrero in the head, knocking him out cold. 
before long, the two really started to kind of respect each other, and they became best friends. Like, they were seriously adorable. They laughed together, and they posed in pictures together. It was like they were brothers. In August 1994, Benoit began working with the Extreme Championship Wrestling in between his Japanese tours. He was booked as a dominant wrestler there, gaining notoriety as the Crippler after he put Rocco Rock out. At November to Remember, Benoit accidentally broke Sabu's neck within the opening seconds of the match. Benoit threw Sabu with the intention that he take a face-first pancake, bu- pancake bump, like landing flat so that the weight would be distributed evenly throughout his body. But Sabu, I guess, attempted to turn mid-air, or he accidentally turned his head a little. Either way, he didn't achieve a full rotation, and he landed almost directly on his neck. After this match, Benoit went to the locker room and broke down over the possibility that he might have paralyzed somebody. But then the head booker at ECW came up with the idea of continuing this crippler moniker for Benoit. So from that point on, they kind of were like, yeah, he'll cripple you. And that was like his gimmick. Until his departure from the ECW, he was known as Crippler Benoit. And when he returned to WCW in October 95, they modified his ring name to the Canadian Crippler Chris Benoit. This kind of entertainment wrestling has a lot of gimmicks. Like, remember, with this kind of wrestling, a lot of what's happening is staged or scripted. It's like they're fighting, but there's there's a theatrical, like, drama behind it. And these guys know how to make it look like they're getting hit a lot harder than they actually are, but they still gotta get hit a little. Especially the ones that are, like, really proud. For example, when they take chair shots to the face... They were actually getting hit in the face. Like, there was there was no way to really fake that. So they would just grit their teeth and tense up their whole body and just anticipate a chair to the dome. And they would wear this like a badge of honor. So Chris, proud as he was, took more chair shots than pretty much anybody. Have you guys seen Glow, by the way? The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling? I know it's random, but it's on Netflix and I highly recommend it. I just remember that show because there's... It's like all these females who are auditioning for, like, a wrestling show, but they have to, like, learn the stunts and stuff. So they, like, rehearse the fights. And that's that's probably a terrible reference for you to learn about wrestling, but I'm going to be honest. If you're kind of girly or dainty like I am, you might have just, like, zero interest in actually watching wrestling right now just to learn about this. So I stand by my recommendation. Go watch Glow. In 1997, Chris caught the attention of Kevin Sullivan, who was a wrestler and also a booker, and he started booking fights with him and Chris against each other. Kevin worked closely with his wife, Nancy, who was a model and his valet in the ring, and the two of them had these Satanist personas, quote-unquote. By Satanist, I don't mean, like, LeVayan followers. I mean, like, the campfire legend, exaggerated, like, cartoon version of satan worshiping image and it was it was all a gimmick you know what i mean like they weren't it was a character they were playing nancy was like one of a kind so like i said she was a valet that's like the i I don't how do i put this she's like the vanna white but she was one of a kind she was the first of her kind she had she brought a real character to her performance at first she was known as the fallen angel before she adopted the persona woman so Kevin, like I said, who was her husband, and he was also a booker. Well, he decided to, like, stage this drama where he and Chris were going to fight over Nancy now. Even though Nancy's his wife, but this was all staged. 
he was bringing her into the theatrics of their fight. And again, it wasn't real, but he made them, like, hold hands in public and go over to each other's hotels and just do all these weird things to keep up the act. The problem came when it became real. Nancy ended up leaving Kevin for Chris. Nancy and Chris started releasing these videos, or, or rather, it was like WCW making these vignettes, but it's Chris and Nancy, like, in Europe, revealing their relationship, and Nancy's kind of implying that Kevin was abusive and she's going to leave him for a better man. And it's hard to tell if it's just, like, a script she's reading off of or if she's partly telling the truth. Nancy's sister, Sandra, has corroborated that she believes Kevin was abusive. She says that Nancy has called her on occasions when she was fighting with Kevin and seemingly trying to, like, get out of his way. Sandra also said that one day Nancy and Chris showed up and Nancy had a black eye. Supposedly the black eye was from Kevin and Chris had, like, picked her up being the knight in shining armor and brought her over to Sandra's house. Chris was also in a relationship at the time. He was actually married and his wife was pregnant with their second child. But apparently they were having some marital troubles, as were Kevin and Nancy. And when this fake affair started and Nancy and Chris started spending more time together, Nancy started to open up to Chris more and kind of calling him whenever she was having problems with Kevin. And I'm guessing Chris probably did the same thing and started to open up to her about his relationship with his wife. I will say, however, that Kevin Sullivan denies that he ever abused Nancy. He explained in an interview that there was only one incident of domestic violence, and it was actually on Nancy's part. Supposedly, she assaulted him somehow, and he forgave her. When asked about Nancy's black eye, he says that he's never seen her with a black eye and has no idea what that's about. Apparently, at the time they staged the fake affair, he and Nancy had already been falling out of love and just not even really living together for the past six months or so. He explains that they had two separate homes and they were just each staying at one of them and he only, like, went and visited the home she was at a couple times and she was never there when he did. So by the time she had officially become a couple with Chris, like, yeah, he was mad, but he ends up explaining later that, like, he thinks that he and Nancy already knew that things were going downhill and it was beyond reconciliation. But there was some tension between Chris and Kevin for a, for a little bit. They would, like, have these fights, like, you know, they were supposed to be staged, but they would end up becoming real life, like, I'm gonna knock you the fuck out. Chris ended up punching the side of Kevin's head over and over, just wailing on him, and it resulted in Kevin's eardrum being ruptured. Benoit did, however, admit to having a certain amount of respect for Sullivan, saying that Sullivan never took undue liberties in the ring during their feud, even though he blamed Benoit for breaking up his marriage. They ended up having this retirement match where Benoit defeated Sullivan, and this was used to explain Sullivan going on a behind-the-scenes role where he could focus on his job of booking. So Chris and Nancy officially got together, and they were just absolutely in love. They had a baby boy named Daniel in the year 2000. Daniel was actually the best man at their wedding, as a little baby. Chris had also had a son from his previous marriage named David, who was about 13 when Daniel was born. And he says that Nancy treated him like her own child. They didn't use the word stepmother or stepson. They were just a big family. And Daniel and David were super close. They dreamt of being wrestlers together as a tag team. By all accounts, Chris was a really loving father. It really bummed him out whenever he had to miss holidays or like special events with the kids because of his work. 
And he would take his kids with him to see him wrestle as often as he could, and he just absolutely doted on them. Nancy also became best friends with Vicky Guerrero, who was the wife of Eddie Guerrero. So the four of them were like a big group of best friends and just considered each other like family. By 2003, Chris and Nancy's marriage started to go downhill. Nancy filed for divorce and a restraining order, alleging that Chris subjected her to cruel treatment and put her in reasonable fear for her safety and that of a minor child. It seems like during times like this, the wrestling community really came together to help them reconcile. Like, they would literally be the middlemen and go tell Nancy, like, oh, Chris, you know, didn't mean this. Chris is like this, you know. And they would tell Chris, like, you know, Nancy was just mad, but, you know, this is how she feels. And before long, Nancy's sister Sandra actually said in an interview that she had Nancy staying with her. And when she got a restraining order, Chris actually called Sandra and just, like, begged her to let him talk to to Nancy. So she hesitated, but she ended up giving Nancy the phone, and they talked for, like, 15 minutes. She was like, I'll be right back. And before long, she was like, okay, take me home. And they got back together. Eddie Guerrero was in a lot of pain around this time, and he would try to mask it with alcohol and drugs until he started falling into a downward spiral. He started getting DUIs and crashing his car, and he actually had a couple overdoses. He showed up to work really high one day, and they ended up letting him go for being unable to perform. He had absolutely hit rock bottom, like his wife and kids were like walking out on him. So he ended up being sent to rehab, and little by little, he got clean. And he got his job back at the WWE. He was in the best shape. So his family came back to him, everything was much, much better. Until November 13th, 2005 when Eddie Guerrero was found unconscious in his hotel room at the Marriott Hotel City Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by his nephew, Chavo. Chavo Guerrero was also a wrestler. He explained that he went up to the hotel room and he found Eddie passed out in the bathroom with a toothbrush in his hand, and he was barely clinging to life. And apparently, like, while he was there with him, Eddie took his last breath. He was pronounced dead when the ambulance arrived at 38 years old. The autopsy revealed that the cause of death was acute heart failure. So he didn't overdose, but it is possible, it is likely that his use of drugs caused a heart condition that killed him. So Chavo sitting there with Eddie in his arms, like just died, and he's just like, doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, Benoit calls him. And he picks up the phone, and Chris is like, hey man, I'm downstairs. That's when Chavo told him that Eddie had died. And Chris just let out this heart-wrenching wail. WWE Raw would do a tribute to Eddie, and they interviewed a few people to talk about him. And Chris offered to speak, and he is just, like, sobbing. Like, his face, his face is soaked with tears. On the dark side of the ring, which is on Hulu, Chris Jericho saw Benoit at Eddie's funeral, and I guess he gave him a hug, and Chris just held onto him for dear life and cried into his shoulder, like, soaking through his jacket. Just a couple months after Eddie's death, Victor Black Cat Mar, Benoit's best friend on the Japanese tours, also died. And then, like, a month later, Johnny Grunge died, who was another friend who would help calm Chris down during, er, after arguments with Nancy. All these guys were in their 30s, and they all died within, like, three months. 
Chris was an absolute wreck. He felt completely lost without Eddie, and he would say that out loud. And Nancy started to get really concerned because it was really affecting him. He was depressed, and it just it wasn't fading. And then he and Nancy started fighting about things that she didn't understand. Like, she didn't understand why he was getting upset all the time about everything. Apparently, Chris was also growing paranoid, and he started looking for, like, new routes everywhere. Like, the gym that they had gone to for years and taken the same route to, he would try to take a different route every day. It was like he was afraid of being traced or something. Nancy got to a point where she got really worried about him, and she felt like him going to work was only doing him harm. It wasn't helping, so she wanted to get him out of there. But Chris, being who he was, was like, no, I don't miss work. And poor Chris was just monumentally grief-stricken. Everywhere he went, at work or with his family, he'd say things like, this place reminds me of Eddie, or last time I was here was with Eddie. On Friday, June twenty-second, two 2007, Chris Benoit snapped. That afternoon, he had a barbecue by the pool with Daniel, and that evening, he got into an altercation with his wife, Nancy, and he attacked her. She tried to fight him off, but was overpowered by his 225-pound, steroid-filled body. In an upstairs bedroom, he bound her limbs and laid her on her stomach, and then wrapped a cord around her neck. He pressed his knee into her back and pulled back on the cord, strangling her. He then wrapped her body in a towel and set a Bible down next to her. Her body would stay there in the house for three more days. The next day was Saturday at 3.30 p.m. Chris called up Chavo Guerrero, who was Eddie's nephew, and he left him a voicemail saying that he missed his flight to Beaumont, Texas, where he was scheduled to wrestle. Chavo sensed that something was wrong, so he called him back, and Chris told him that he was having a stressful day because his wife and child were sick with food poisoning. He told him he would get on a flight and see him tomorrow. The phone call ended with Chris telling Chavo, I love you, which was uncharacteristic. And Chavo says it was weird, like kind of eerie, but he was just like, okay, man, I love you too. Chris again didn't show up for his flight, so a coworker called him and he told her that Nancy and Daniel were sick with food poisoning and now it was worse. Nancy was vomiting blood. It's unclear exactly when Daniel died, but based on his decomposition, it's estimated to have been between Saturday and Sunday. First, Chris sedated Daniel with a dose of Xanax, so he was likely unconscious when this all happened. Benoit suffocated Daniel using the Crippler Crossface, a famous chokehold. The following morning on Sunday, around 4 a.m., Chris Benoit sent out five text messages to co-workers from his and Nancy's phones. The first few said things like, our address is so-and-so, and then continued with, but dogs are in the enclosed pool area, side doors open. And the next few texts were, like, identical, but they were just sent out from Nancy's phone. And then Chris Googled a couple things. One was the Bible story of Elijah about resurrecting a child. The other was on how to break his neck the quickest and easiest way. Chris went to his gym and made a noose out of the cord from a pull-down workout machine, and then he added weights to the machine, approximately 240 pounds, and wrapped a towel around his neck, tied the towel to the machine's handle, and pulled down on it, and just released the weights. The next day, nobody could reach Chris. He didn't show up to work again, and nobody knew where he was, and now everybody had received these concerning text messages from Chris and Nancy. So the police were called for a welfare check. When the officers showed up at their house, the dogs were out and they were barking like crazy. 
And a neighbor was outside and they were like, have you seen Chris Benoit or Nancy? And she was like, no, I haven't seen them in like three or four days. So I guess the neighbor offered to put the dogs away. She said that they were familiar with her. So the, the, the cops were like, yeah, cool, you do that. So she took the dogs inside and all of a sudden she ran back outside screaming. The officers went inside and they found all three bodies. There was no suicide note found at the scene, but later on a box of Chris's personal belongings would be sent to his ex-wife. And she found a Bible in which Chris had left a handwritten note on the pages that read, I'm preparing to leave this earth. The WWE got word of Chris's death, so Vince McMahon went and informed Chavo that Chris was dead. Chavo was in absolute shock. He started crying, like, what do you mean? But it was true. At the time, the WWE didn't know the whole story. They just knew that Chris was dead and his family was dead too, but nobody knew that Chris was the killer. Nobody had any answers. So Vince McMahon felt it was the right thing to address his death and pay tribute to him, and they also probably wanted to be the first people to cover it, to be honest. They dedicated the entire Monday Night Raw programming to Chris Benoit, so they didn't have any wrestling. They just, like, interviewed a bunch of people and talked about Chris. It's unclear when the WWE found out that Chris actually murdered his family, but some have said that Vince McMahon actually found out during the Monday Night Raw performance. But of course, he can't just, like, stop this, like, funeral vibe tribute thing right in the middle. I mean, Monday Night Raw was, like, two to three hours long, so Vince McMahon was like, I fucked up. And after that, he was basically like, okay, fuck that guy. Nobody ever utter the name Chris Benoit again. Right after this, right after I say this, we're not talking about him again. They banned the Crippler crossface move. They removed all the footage and any mention of Chris on the WWE website. Chris, who dreamt of being a well-known wrestler, was now like, he who shall not be named. But sadly, in the aftermath of all this, not a single person from the WWE checked on Chris or Nancy's families or gave them any support. When David Benoit was interviewed, he said that the only people who ever checked in on him were Chavo Guerrero and Chris Jericho. On the drug scene, they also found... On the drug scene. (laughs) On the crime scene, they also found steroids, so the media's initial response to the murders was roid rage. In the months leading up to the murders, Nancy had sent Chris numerous texts telling him to quit using steroids, that she was sick of it, and she was going to leave him if he didn't stop because it was making him aggressive. She also said, we both know the wellness program is crap. So the wellness program was this program that was supposed to, like, promote the health of wrestlers and shit, supposedly. Like, this was, supposedly this was a way to make sure that the wrestlers were being drug tested and all this but it had a lot of loopholes also what vince mcmahon was found to be doing was referring some of these wrestlers to a doctor and a pharmacist that would give them steroid when benoit died he was found to have had an enormous amount of testosterone like 10 times the normal amount of testosterone for a human being so it was clear that he was using steroids excessively and yet He had passed all of his wellness exams leading up to his death. Needless to say, these exams were a joke. So Vince McMahon gets on TV and basically says, there's no way this was steroids or any kind of rage. This was clearly premeditated and thought out. It's like he's trying to say, I didn't give anybody steroids, but if I did, they wouldn't have made him do this. 
just to give you a little bit of reference about uh, how violent Chris actually was towards Nancy before all this, Vicky Guerrero and Sandra both said that they had witnessed Chris being violent. Like one time, he broke the windshield of their car with his bare fist. There was another article that came out like way later in February 2008 in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it reported that Nancy may have suspected her husband of having an affair with a female WWE wrestler, and that they may have also argued over a life insurance policy. The article claimed that the source was a recently released report from the Fayette County Sheriff's Office. There is another explanation to this, and we're going to get a little scientific for a minute. There's another WWE wrestler named Chris Nowinski who retired from wrestling after having way too many concussions. He didn't acknowledge that they were concussions until it was too late. So after retiring, he decided to read up on everything he could find about concussions, and it ended up becoming a whole book. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a progressive brain condition that's thought to be caused by repeated blows to the head and repeated episodes of concussion. When Nowinski heard about Chris Benoit, he remembered a moment that they shared together in a locker room, and Chris actually asked him about concussions, and he asked him how many he had had. Nowinski told him, I think I've had six that I can recall. And Benoit replied to him, I've had more than I can count. He gave Nowinski his phone number and asked him to call him back about this. So Nowinski called him back about a week later, and Chris actually sounded like he was in an argument and was like, now's not a good time, can I call you back? So they never actually got around to talking about it. But after Chris died, of course, Nowinski had to know if Chris had CTE. He called up Chris's father and told him his theory, and he agreed to allow them to examine Chris's brain. Within a month, they found that Chris had a severe case of CTE. It was absolutely shocking. His brain had the damage of an 85-year-old person with Alzheimer's. There was damage in all kinds of places, places that could influence his emotional behavior, and Nowinski believes that the degeneration of his brain actually changed who he was. Because remember, Chris had done like dozens and dozens of flying headbutts and suplexes and chair shots. Now you've got to wonder how many wrestlers probably have CTE. Think about this. The flying headbutt move was invented by Harvey Race, and he actually warned everyone not to do it. He told them, it's going to fuck up your back, and you're going to really suffer in old age. It's going to be impossible. And then, Dynamite Kid went and started doing the flying headbutt. He ended up in a wheelchair, and he warned Chris Benoit, don't do it, bro. But then Chris Benoit went and did it, and he lost his mind. Ultimately, it seems like Chris's fate was sealed when he decided to do whatever it takes to be a champion wrestler. And I think that losing Eddie really fucked him up and really made him snap. Maybe that made him use more steroids, or maybe that made him fight more with his wife, or maybe it was both. Or I just think the whole thing is you put all these terrible things and mix them up in a pot and put them in his brain that was already broken. The whole thing is just heartbreaking. In my personal opinion, I don't think he would have gone this far if not the CTE. I mean, of course, I don't, what do I know? But to me, it's like the paranoia before the murders, plus Googling the Bible stories, plus the brain scans are enough to convince me that he just wasn't right in the mind. Don't misunderstand me, though. Chris did a horrific thing, but a lot of times, monsters are made. That's like a running theme on this podcast. He was literally broken by the limelight, you guys. Chris's son, David, loves him so much and speaks so highly of him. It's actually really sad, like, David and Chavo and, like, all these people who love Chris so much, they miss him and they're proud of him, and he was their hero, like, they're still, he's still their hero, but 
his name is like literally banned. His legacy was like a race. And people talk shit about David and they bullied him for defending his family. And that just, it really bugs me because, I mean, it was found not to be roid rage. It was brain damage that he, I mean, he didn't even know he had it. So the reality is that he had a work-related injury that made him lose his mind and his employer slash pusher slash enabler did nothing but say, well, that couldn't have been steroids. And now 15 years later, they still won't make any mention of his name on their website or elsewhere. I have a lot of opinions about uh, people who use their bodies or for performing like athletes and singers and actors and such and how much they actually have to sacrifice for their craft. And they're encouraged to, they're expected to, pressured to even cross the line and sacrifice their health. It's like um the gymnast, hold on. Yeah, Simone Biles. Like she was put in a position where she had to stand up for her body and say, I cannot do this right now. I am not in the right health, in the right frame of mind to perform these moves. And she was like bullied for it. What is this world where these employers don't give a fuck about what happens to our bodies? What is this world where they not only turn a blind eye to their employees who have drug dependencies, but they actually encourage it and fuel the dependency? And what a lot of people don't realize is that if one person stands up and says, I'm not doing this, the employer knows that there's going to be some poor sap somewhere who will do it and will do it for less money. Like, okay, Adele had a concert scheduled here in Las Vegas recently. The cheapest tickets were like $2,000 or something ridiculous like that. And a few local performers were cast to sing like choral parts in the show and they were paid so low. It was ridiculous. But of course, people were like, but I get to put singing with Adele on my resume. It's heartbreaking. People in these industries are totally taken advantage of. Speaking of which, one of my sources is another podcast that totally has the same conversation, except it was an actual conversation because it's not just one person. But these girls are actually performers here in Las Vegas as well. So this podcast is called Morning Murders Podcast, and they also did a really good episode on Chris Benoit. It was much more detailed because uh, Brenna, one of the hosts, actually knows quite a bit about wrestling. So check out Morning Murders Podcast. It's, there's some funny fucking bitches, too. You're going to like it. You're going to love it. <laughs> I also listened to the coverage done by Last Podcast on the Left. And the show Dark Side of the Ring, Season 2, Episodes 1 and 2, are about Chris Benoit. You can actually watch that on Hulu. Alright, so that is the story of Chris Benoit and the murder-suicide. I posted some pictures of Nancy and Daniel, and also like a couple of them with Chris and David, because they, they really were a beautiful family. The way Chris Jericho puts it is, he was my friend. You never expect to find out that your friend murdered their whole family. Be sure to check out BrokenLimelight.com for an almost transcript of this episode, as well as photos and interviews about this case. I want to give you guys a big thank you because we just hit 10,000 downloads on this podcast, and I am beside myself. You guys are incredible, and I am so, so grateful for your support. I want to give out a couple of shout-outs. Um, the first is to Ellen Tempe. Ellen is constantly reacting to our Facebook posts and she's just so kind and sweet to us. So thank you, Ellen, for being a fan. You're an absolute angel. The other is to Crystal Beecher. Crystal, subscribe to our podcast for 99 cents. You guys, it's only 99 cents a month to give us a little bit of support and you have no idea how much it means to us. It's a dollar. Help us out. Let's be friends. 
If you'd like more updates on our episodes and stuff, you can follow Broken Limelight on Facebook or you can follow DD West on Facebook or Instagram. Guys, if you're not following me yet, you're missing out. I'm telling you. Well, thanks again for being here. I'll see you next time. Bye. know my dogs Jude and Eleanor Rigby. Well we just started getting them bark box and I'm telling you your dogs will love you. No more are they angry at the mailman. No more I say. It's like a box of dog joy that's delivered every month and each box tells a different story with different themed toys, treats, and photo worthy props. Typically what we get in each box is a couple of toys, a couple of treats, and a chew but you can actually tailor fit your box to fit your dog's needs. Guys I'm telling you your dogs will love you even more than they already do. So try it out, and if you use my link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is a $35 value. So just head to BarkBox.com slash Broken Limelight and get started on your first BarkBox today. BarkBox, 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 BarkBox. Nailed it, Jude.